Sadir Desai and Doug McDavid join us today on the Via Bridge podcast. I'm your host, Mike McClintock. Sadir Desai is an innovation strategist and the principal and CEO of Living Enterprise Incorporated. That's a Cambridge, Massachusetts consulting firm that helps bring some strategic ideas to life and it improves the impact through foresight and innovation and design. So we cover a wide range of high-tech business topics today, including why venture capital isn't the only answer and why established businesses need to think like startups. Sadir and I start the conversation today talking about how he's located in a physical community of 500 startups. I am in fact located um, in the Cambridge Innovation Center. Mm-hmm. It's one of the spaces uh, uh, in the U.S. Uh, it's it's uh, got over 500 startups. It's supposed to be one of the 500 largest. startups. Yes, it's supposed to be one of the largest such places. It's got over four and a half billion dollars uh, in in startup capital ventures. Um, and you get to interact with these people all day at a startup level, and you're also interfacing with uh, Fortune 500 companies. So, so you've got the 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 innovative the uh, uh, the level of innovation is crazy at the startup level. And you can introduce that kind of knowledge and thinking to the Fortune 500. Plus, you can turn around and 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 give that Fortune 500 perspective back to uh, the innovators at the startup level. That that's a very interesting perspective. I hadn't. Uh, I mean, I I do that naturally. I hadn't given thought to that specifically. Mm-hmm. That is indeed true. Like what I bring to the entrepreneurs um, is is a perspective that is typically I find missing in the entrepreneurial world. Okay. So a lot of people, as you know, and there's a lot of entrepreneurial energy uh, in the environment today, right? Particularly when you're sitting across from, uh, in Cambridge, from institutions like MIT and Harvard. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of encouragement. Have there uh, been any startups that came out of Harvard recently? <laughs> oh, I'm being I facetious. Mean, <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Like you know, you should like a is, social network or something. Yeah, I mean, there is. Uh, there are lots of Harvard has, for example, uh, right next to it, um, a place where they encourage some of the people that come out of Harvard to start ventures. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them show up over here. This is across the street from MIT. A lot of people who are here um, come from all kinds of schools. I mean, it's not just MIT. The the whole Boston University ecosystem feeds a lot of these entrepreneurial startup places, right? So you see them all. And one of the things, as I was saying earlier, is that these entrepreneurs, um, you know, they come out of college, most of them tend to be fairly young. They have very bright people. They have some fantastic ideas. But sometimes, as we know, uh, there is this larger story that, you know, as an entrepreneur, you should expect to fail. Right? And there is a there is this larger story that, um, or at least failure is okay. Yeah, or that failure is okay, and that you know the there's just an underlying undercurrent of this belief that not many of these ventures will succeed or make it big, right? And I am I see myself as countering that idea, right? Where I think that when entrepreneurs think through things a little more carefully, then we improve their opportunity to succeed, right? 
and it is there where I can bring my um, several years of experience working in larger and more complex environments with the larger Fortune 500 companies and help them see how they think about the things that they want to change, the systemic aspects of introducing something new. And while we understand that we need to like fail fast and fail, uh, you know, fail often and be agile and try to do lean thinking, mm-hmm. it is always helpful to also give some thought to what you're doing as you start iterating through your, uh, you know, the minimum value proposition. So I think there is a certain balance. And one of the, you know, the, the experience that I had working with people over here is that they all appreciate that they don't know what they're missing. And so when they actually experience this conversation that we have, they appreciate the fact that they, you know, they stand a better chance of making a better pitch, making a better, you know, redesigning their value proposition, reconsidering the way they think they're going to uh, approach what they're doing. So I think they do benefit. Um, and I and I, that's what living enterprise brings to them. On the other hand, uh, what happens as far as the reverse flow is concerned, some of the larger enterprises, um, you know, trying to get entrepreneurial, not just entrepreneurial innovations, innovation in general. Right. Uh, going in their companies. I mean, sometimes innovation tends to be of an entrepreneurial nature, but then it's, as you know, you know, innovation uh, can happen on many fronts, right? I mean, there isn't uh, just the product or the service, there is you know, the processes, the business models. There's so many different ways that people can drive innovation, excuse me. Mm-hmm. So what happens is that um, some of those ventures, um, some of those initiatives that enterprises take on have the nature of an entrepreneurial startup, right? And right. So, so one can bring that. But my conversations with um, larger companies tend to have, you know, most of the issues that I find with larger companies have, have a very broad kind of a spectrum of, um, you know, challenges, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the biggest ones is that it's harder for a large company to, um, you know, which has been around for a, for a long time, for example, to have an in-depth understanding of the way they create value, for example, right? So they're necessarily, because they're large, they're embedded in ecosystems. They're embedded right. in ecosystems. They need a skunk works. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of so, like what Quick uh, QuickBooks did when they, exactly. they had this embedded, you know, huge franchise of desktop software for small and medium-sized business accounting. And when they decided to uh, move it to a SaaS model and try to create a SaaS product, they picked up the team, moved them like eight states away, and said, you're not allowed to talk to anybody here. Go make it right. lean and agile and make it the way that you'd make it. And it doesn't have to do any have anything to do with the old way of doing it. So they created that whole Skunk Works. It's a pretty good product. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's clearly one of, you know, it's a well-recognized approach mm-hmm. to how to create something totally new. It's an interesting thing too, because I've been talking to a lot of people lately about that, you know, and it's there's 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 something to be said, obviously, for venture capital and the whole venture capital model, and 
and figuring out uh, how to build a startup that can either have an exit of some sort, you know, either an IPO or an acquisition or something. But within that that ecosystem of, of startups uh, that are strictly venture capital funded, you have to have you have to begin with the exit in mind. Whereas mm-hmm. if you go and pick up a large uh, uh, corporation that wants to do something innovative, then you know what you've really done is pick up a customer. You can be a strategic uh, investment for for all these large companies. And frankly, I mean, the amount of money that that large companies have just dwarfs the entire venture capital industry. Not to cap on you know the venture capital industry or anything. I mean, I love it, but. You know, I mean, it, doesn't Apple have a hundred billion dollars just sitting there in cash? Isn't there something like three trillion dollars locked up in cash, sitting on the sidelines, looking for uh, a proper strategic investment? And it seems to me that that's the real big ecosystem that maybe moving forward, startups should be looking at as well. So it's not just uh, get the cash from somebody so that you can build a product and sell it to people. It's you know, get that strategic customer. Oh, absolutely. I think um, so. So you bring up some very interesting points, right? So one of the assets that large companies have is their huge customer base, right? The mm-hmm. fact that they have established an ecosystem, they have grown that ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. Over, a, oh, they have a history. What is important is, you know, there's a lot of conversation about disruption, right? And and one of the popular topics among entrepreneurs is that they will disrupt. You know, they have something that is going to disrupt, um, you know, whether in healthcare or in education or whatever. Mm -hmm. And yes, I mean, some of these startup ideas will end up disrupting uh, an existing ecosystem, right? But more often than not, you are up against established ecosystems, right? Whether the Apple ecosystem, the Google ecosystem, or any of those, right? Mm -hmm. So the question is, some of the smartest strategies... uh, or not necessarily better strategies, I should take that back. One of the ways to understand is that, you know, you may or may not necessarily disrupt, but you can always co-evolve with an existing ecosystem, right? You right. Can, so can so instead of being Borders versus Amazon, you turn yourself into Amazon before Amazon can eat your lunch. Right, exactly. Co-evolve. I like that, that, that right there. Co-evolve with an existing ecosystem. And that's interesting because that takes that takes two different sets of thinking, I believe. One from the perspective of the founder to, you know, evolve with a current ecosystem is different from build it in a vacuum and, you know, uh, put it out there for the world to get feedback and try to create your own ecosystem. And then another is from the established uh, uh, ecosystem of how do they um, become innovative enough to allow the the skunk work startup type of a thing to um to to do that without disrupting what they're doing uh on a day-to-day basis because whatever they're doing on a day-to-day basis today even if they're trying to disrupt it themselves it's still the cash cow for funding what's happening so that's right. that's and an interesting I, I, impedance mismatch uh, that is worth solving i think <laughs> yeah, I think uh, impedance mismatch is actually quite an accurate way to... Uh, so impedance mis- mismatch is one of the first problems we solve, right? Which is most companies as they evolve, uh, most not just companies, but even industries as they evolve, they are out of sync 
with the way things have changed. So when I initially said that what Living Enterprise does, it helps you navigate the context internally and externally, a complex context. Typically what has happened in most cases is that they have, in the course of their evolution, lost track. Lost track of what their uh, original hypothesis was as to how they were going to impact something. And uh, they have evolved over a period of time. And they might be currently out of sync with the, uh, with the current context, as well as they might be completely out of sync with where things are going, right? So one of the first challenges, and that causes an impedance mismatch, right? Mm -hmm. And right. Uh, you're, you, you're, you're using the term from, um, you know, electronics and communication and a number of other places, the idea being that when your impedances match, and impedance is a technical concept here, but when you match the impedance of what, you know, the, the transmitting and the receiving system, then you get the best outcomes, right? Which basically means you are in sync with whatever it is that you are, you know, the context with which you're working, and which could be the market, your customers, whatever. So people don't realize that things have changed. More often than not, they continue to hang on to concepts, to fundamental principles and models and rules, and therefore the behaviors, which this is constantly making adjustments rather than doing fundamental change, which requires them to go back and look at the principles uh, with which they're operating and see if those principles are in alignment with the current and the future context, right? So this is one of the biggest issues people have. And so when innovation fails or when they try to do innovation in, in small, you know, parts like acquiring something or forcing an initiative, mm -hmm. it often tends out to be not a fundamental change in the way they think and, and act, but it incrementalism. Yes, it becomes cosmetic, right? It mm -hmm. becomes so. You are lucky if that becomes enduring enough, where it becomes something that fuels your, you know, growth in future. But if you really want sustainable growth, if you want to make uh, a distinctive, sustained impact, you really have to go deeper and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and just come down. And how deep do you have to go? The whole skunk works? Right. I mean, so, you know, skunk works is one way uh, to, to get something going. But ultimately, if you, if you are at Google, for example, if you are an Amazon or if you are a General Electric and you have hundreds of thousands of people and hundreds of thousands of customers, if you're an IBM, a skunk works will not save you mm -hmm. because you have a hundreds of thousands of people that will eventually, it's like moving an economy to a new kind of economy, right? Skunk works is clearly one of the ways to do it and it's proven very successful, right? Um, so there's no doubt about the fact that there are certain circumstances in which when an organization is trying to do something that is requires a significant shift from the way they're operating or the way their current structures require them to operate, a skunk works is easier. Mm -hmm. But what I was saying was that if the skunk works is a recognition of a fundamental shift in the context in which you operate, right? That is, the market has shifted, technologies have shifted, there are new opportunities. You ultimately have to think about the fact that you need to take your entire company that way. 
right? So if you are a company that has 50, 100,000, 200,000 people with thousands of customers, a skunk works and the success of a skunk works alone will not save you. You really have to, you might have to take the entire business to a completely new operating model. Mm -hmm. But you can, you can experiment with those operating models through the skunk works. So, you know, you could, you could have a strategic partnership between a fortune 500 company trying to basically disintermediate themselves through strategic investments in multiple startups, for example. And once they've proven that there's a little bit, okay, this might work, then it gives you an opportunity to say, okay, now how do we move this entire ship uh, in that direction without having to move the entire ship in that direction? So it's very agile. It's almost like you can bolt the agile process onto these existing uh, uh, organizations, which to me, I mean, I, I know Doug's heard me talk about this over and over again, and I, I've talked about it on my podcast and, and, and everything. It, 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 this to me is the next hundred years. We've got a digital uh, ecosystem and we've got a digital way of doing things where we're digitally native, yet we still have some analog uh, companies that are out there. And you can't just take a you know gigantic, massive company and go, hey, I think we're going to do it this way. Um, that's crazy. You have to figure out a way to innovate uh how you're going to do that, prove out whether or not there's an actual model that makes sense, and then move towards that. But it seems to me that every business, every large business in America should be doing this right now. So where Sadir thinks we are right now in history is an inflection point. And that's one of my favorite words. And it reminds me of Flip Filipowski from Chicago when he was doing the roadshow for Divine Interventures, which is still one of my favorite companies. It was probably way ahead of its time. And that was in 1999. So fast forward to 2015, and my friend Sadir the Futurist and I are talking about that inflection point in the present. Stick with this part. It gets really interesting when we talk about skunk works and business model generation. And I also get to say my new favorite phrase, disintermediate the intermediaries. Where I think we are right now in history is that, um, I mean, this... In fact, any time in history you will see people in business talking about the fact that we are at a cusp or we are at an inflection point or this is fundamentally different. And, um, you know, it seems as if there's, there's, you know, if I say that we are, we are at an inflection point, it might sound as if, you know, this is yet another person or yet another statement of, you know, there's radical change and, you know, we need to... But I think in this, just let's just step back and look at the kind of the nature of the change. And then on the surface, we're looking at it as technology-driven, right? And technology is both a driver of change and an enabler of change, right? And we've mm -hmm. got to understand that has two different implications. The driver of change is acting not just on the enterprise, it's acting on every aspect of our being. Uh, global economies, nations, you know, the way we operate in societies and so on and so forth. So there are implications to what a driver of change has enabled. And we are seeing its implications in politics, in society, in way. So we see, for example, the emergence of a sharing economy or a peer-to-peer -peer economy and things like that, very driven by what technology has done to society and, you know, by enabling them to to network and so on and so forth. Then comes the question of technology as an enabler. So we as a corporation, let's say, are looking therefore at what can we do with technology 
But the first impedance match that we have to do is to come up with models and come up with ways of being that are in alignment with what technology has done to the outside world, right? And unless we understand that, and unless we understand the nature of change in the context in which we are operating, we cannot even begin to use technology to innovate. Well, that's true. I mean, and, and if you create those models, the perfect vehicle for testing those models is the startup. It is true. Yeah, a startup. In fact, in almost this is this is historically, you know, also been true is that the role of a pilot and a prototype, right? In IBM, for mm -hmm. example, there used to be this, there used to be this concept of first of a kind, right? And uh, even in HP and digital and other places I've worked with the compact in the past, we always had special arrangements when we brought in a new technology to the market. We would work with some specific chosen clients um, to do pilots and prototypes and things like that, right? They were a kind of a, uh, you know, a hosted skunk works, so to say. So this idea that you have to prototype and the idea that you have to experiment, and that's the faster way to go something bigger and to prove a point and to prove a concept that's been around and i think the skunk works is clearly one of those prototyping models Here's the yeah, maybe we shouldn't even be calling it the skunk works anymore maybe we should just be acknowledging that the skunk works is the uh, the startup and that the people who are the innovators that could do that particularly when you know you've got 500 of them over there where you're at uh, um, in order to get the innovator, the people who can who can build these models and, and execute these models and experiment with these models and do it in a way that's agile and proves whether or not it works, that's probably a great recruiting tool there because typically those people are not going to want to go work for, uh, you know, some Fortune 500 company and become some, you know, somewhere in the middle of that whole thing. They're going to want to do it in an agile way. So it's a good way to... Um, almost like outsource your prototyping to to a uh, to a skunk works and who knows it could turn into Amazon or outsource it to a uh, to a startup it could turn into an Amazon it could turn into the new way that you're gonna do it or it might blow up in your face in which case it's not that big of a deal because you haven't really uh, you haven't committed anything to it in the short run you haven't started turning the big ship you've just thrown a bunch of little uh, little boats in the water so I might I might um, I might push you back on that one a little bit, or maybe okay, I okay. You can push me back. That's fine. That's all right. That's the internet. We so, can do anything uh, we want. <laughs> no, I think I have a slightly different take on this. One one of the things is yes, you are right. Right, that is exactly the largest narrative right now, which is uh, in 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 healthcare, for example, in pharmaceuticals, in a number of other places. The, cost of innovation, the cost of research and development has gone up so significantly that it is much cheaper to acquire, right? Okay. Um, and so therefore you shift the burden of the risk to the entrepreneurs and you pick, you only have to pick the ones that are successful. So therefore you've shifted the risk out of your corporation. In those cases where it is the acquisition of a product or a technology, right? So if, if, a, if a, you know, a startup in the pharmaceutical space comes up with a Viagra, then all you have to do is, you know, acquire that thing and then figure out how to scale it and make it in big numbers and sell it across the world, right? That's a simpler problem right. than when something requires you, for example, 
to fundamentally change the way you operate. Right? That is a paradigmatic shift. Right. So we're not talking about innovation purely as yet another new product or in an existing market space. That is, you know, that those there are those kinds of problems. And yes, of course, you can acquire something and all, all you need to do is scale and bring it to market in big numbers. What we are talking about is fundamental shifts. Let's say, for example, uh, you are in a, 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 a hotel uh, chain and then comes Airbnb. You cannot acquire an Airbnb and continue to operate your existing hotel business. Right. Airbnb is a fundamentally different way of being, or Lyft or Uber. These are fundamentally different paradigms. They don't, you don't acquire them um, uh, and, and merge them, right? They don't, they don't complement, they don't exist by the side. They fundamentally disrupt the way that business operates. And that is what the problem is. Uh, when I say that you cannot uh, outsource innovation to subsequently acquire it from a startup, is, is when, when the ships are so fundamental. And if, if that is not true in your industry, then you don't have to do it. And that, you know, acquiring a startup is, is a very good idea. But where you need to revisit whether your paradigms are being disrupted, where the fundamental underlying logic of your industry is likely to be disrupted. And it might not be happening today. If you, you're better off if you can anticipate it, right? If you can see the Airbnb coming, if you can see the Uber coming, if you can see these new models that are emerging coming, and if you build that capability to foresee, then you can start those ventures, you can start those skunk works in-house and um, prepare an, the entire enterprise to make that shift when it happens. And that's, I think, the part of us is you could acquire something that is startup and if you're lucky, you know, it it will become a substantive portion of your business so that it becomes the new growth engine or the, you know, fuels growth in the future. But that's, I don't know how many times that has actually happened. There are mm -hmm. business, business narratives in the stories. We hear the same success stories over and over again. But there are not so many uh, of these success stories going around that you know, but that's data. the nature of the math of it. I mean, you're still yeah. going to wind up with 10%. He's, you know, and that's the, that's the, the, like you're saying, there's a lot of risk in it. Um, so they, they shift the risk onto the entrepreneur. Um, but that kind of proves the point a little bit in that, yeah, you can't, then you can't acquire it, right? Uh, you've mm -hmm. shifted the risk. So the risk uh, is on the entrepreneur. So the entrepreneur builds an Airbnb. What if you were, uh, you know, a hotel chain and you were working in concert with that and maybe maybe that's just a one of those weird uh you know black swan outliers airbnb where it completely says hey you know what we're not going to need uh fixed places for people we'll just rent out people's houses uh uber again you know but that i i would argue that a taxi a big gigantic taxi company that owns a bunch of medallions and a bunch of cabs and leases them out to to uh, to drivers I would argue that a taxi company could have invented Uber and a taxi company yeah, yeah. should have invented Uber and a taxi company should have become a, uh, the, the, the disintermediator of themselves because Uber arose out of, you know, people didn't, didn't want the taxi model. 
and the taxi model is great for the people who own the the taxi licenses um but i would argue they should have maybe not airbnb because you know uh, hotels is a real estate kind of thing Airbnb maybe that's a little bit different but uber easily yeah i think you're right i mean people can this is this is where we come in right our idea is that we are here to help enterprises figure that out and see it coming and be no not wait for an entrepreneur to establish a successful model which is one possible strategy innovation strategy but to start understanding that their paradigms might be shifting and uh, just to close off on that i think what is happening one of the biggest shifts that is happening with technology as a driver of change is that the sharing economies are here to stay they are going to be mm-hmm. big player in future the peer to peer economies where where many of the older sharing. enterprises existed to facilitate the x to y now it's peer to peer right and so that is going to be a big force and so sure that's one of the great things that the internet does is disintermediate the intermediaries and allow for the uh for the peer to peer um hence uber yeah absolutely i think uh, I, and this is the shift that what happens is established structures when you are in the hotel business or in the taxi business the person you know you you have built an ecosystem where the medallion for example is a very valued thing right and therefore you are up against that when you say that the medallion is no longer something that we uh, really care about because a person who doesn't own a medallion but has spare capacity and has a car that is willing to drive around exactly i mean that's exactly the point though is that let's say you know let's say there's 10 big groups that own medallions and Mm -hmm. they really they compete with each other um Mm -hmm. and together collectively they could say well we're gonna we're gonna fight you know this this whole entire thing where these people are encroaching on our turf um by not using medallions but what if one of those 10 major groups of medallion holders innovated uber he could he could beat all the rest of his his competitors absolutely he could disintermediate himself and and break the cartel right absolutely and i think this is where the hard work comes in mike i mean this is right so where the hard work comes in in our work with the larger enterprises is precisely to be able to help them see the fundamentals the logic of their business see what constraints they're working with and how to loosen those constraints and start imagining something new right and to be able to like they may not they may have the medallion they may be in the taxi business they've never really you know it's like you know the parable or the or the story about frogs in a um, exactly you know, yeah in the water boiling, boiling oil, mm-hmm. right so they cannot they're so embedded that they may not perceive the changes yeah. that are happening or they don't want to believe that it could happen i mean borders is right. the perfect right. example they stuck their head in the sand forever and said it's not happening the internet isn't nobody's going to buy books on the internet and then they got to the finally to the point where they they were okay i guess maybe people will buy books on the internet we'll just let amazon handle it and how'd that work out for them? So you wind up with yeah. these organizations that have been around for a hundred years that that I, I believe didn't want to believe that they, that it was possible. It wasn't that they're stupid. They're not. They just, it was like they fundamentally just thought, well, 
I guess they'll probably take some of our market share. There's no way they could completely demolish the the physical book industry. And, and, and I think that brings up an interesting aspect from an ecosystem perspective. There are two ecosystems that work here, right? Within in, uh, in the border case or in the taxi case. One is the ecosystem that um, provides the taxi service, but one is the ecosystem that consumes the taxi service, right? And typically we, we would like to see them together as a single value co-creating system. But before we get to that, right, what happens is that the, that the ecosystem that exists outside your boundaries, they are not bound to using the service the way you've conceived it. Right. They can say, I don't necessarily need a yellow cab that has a medallion, right? I don't need to buy a book in a particular place. So they are freer and technology empowers them to reconfigure the way they create value. So they can say, I can now get mobility by coordinating myself with somebody out there who lets me know that they have spare capacity. That is the technology as a, as a driver of change that's happening outside the scope of the taxi industry, where the taxi industry needs to be able to uh, rethink itself is that, you know, they are, the people outside their boundaries are not waiting for their permission to go ahead and start using a different model. So if that force is large enough, if they don't get their act together and open up to that possibility, so this is where they are not co-evolving. This is where they are not working with the ecosystem outside. And what we argue in living enterprise is that your opportunity is to reduce that distance to where you become embedded in the value creation process of your customer. Mm -hmm. So you are no longer separate right, from that value creation process. So if you are a part of that, you will see the fact that the way people can create value when they need mobility is changing and that you need to, you know, you need to like co-evolve with them and create a totally different model, right? And that the mm -hmm. medallion model that, that locked you in, that locks you but in. But you have to, to find, you have to find somebody uh, in leadership that's willing to A, admit that and has the ability to then uh, go down that path um, you know, are they are are the are the big companies now? Is that on their radar? Are they really, for the most part, sitting back saying we've got to look at alternative business models here as a major sea level strategic initiative? Right, and is so that, is that really happening? I guess is is the question. You would probably you would you I, might I know. I think it is. I think you know this thing plays out in the market, right? I mean, nobody's. You know, these people aren't stupid. They are, they, uh, people are fighting against some of these things. They are always, all enterprises are in a constant tussle between exploration and exploitation, as Doug will tell you. Um, they, this is a constant flux, right? So the mm -hmm. question is, they're up against, they're up against resistance. And the more, and the more savvy a leader is, you, I'm so happy you brought up leadership. Leadership is extremely important. And we have to, as people who, are here to help companies become innovative, have to make them aware of this process. And we have to recognize that this is not uh, a, an overnight process. People who promise 
quick results, particularly to large corporations, right, are probably misleading because we understand that these things are not easy to change. And yes, leaders make a difference because once they get it, then they can take their organization through that process of change. And it's a longer process and it's not something that you can do overnight. So leadership is definitely a very, very critical is that uh, is that though the inflection point that we that you were talking about earlier is that you know you're either innovating it and you're trying to co-create or you are defending yourself and fighting against it i feel like they've mostly been trying to defend themselves and fight against it um for for the for the most part is that the inflection point that we've that we've got to now is that yeah. they've, they've moved from fighting it to co-creating I think co-creation is exactly what the inflection point is. I think people have started to see, and some of these things have become extremely apparent, that the notion that you can stand outside the system, that you are in control, that you are, uh, you know, that uh, those concepts have started shifting, people have started becoming aware. I don't think they have completely internalized it because all industries are not the same. Some move faster, some move slower, as we know. Um, those that are struggling today are struggling primarily because they are not yet opened up to the idea that um, they are no longer in control. The locus of control has shifted. This is what the inflection point is. The locus of control has fundamentally shifted away from the corporations, from the from the corporations. They, they are more hmm. and more, we have to see this. So if the locus of control has shifted, then the entire uh, model has to shift. Exactly, exactly. So where is the where's the new locus of control? Okay, so the locus of control is shifted away from the corporation. So I ask, where is it shifted to? Doug drops some knowledge on us in our next segment. His perspective talks a bit about the creation of entirely new markets. There are new markets that get created by some of these innovations. Like, for instance, Airbnb. And and the other factor that I want to throw in there, kind of at the same time or another side of that coin, is the, the branding aspect. You know, it's not all about just technology. It's not all just about space. It's not all just about, you know, moving from one point to another like Uber. But actually, uh, you know, the, the fact that a lot of people actually like to stay in a hotel. They will always want to stay in a hotel. And then there's a whole market which was developed that didn't really exist or was really informal that, you know, well, I don't mind going and crashing on somebody's floor or, or this sort of one-off type of thing. But yeah, it's a whole new a market. branding factor that says, you know, if you go to a Hilton, right, you're going to get the Hilton experience. If you go to the Renaissance, you're going to get the Renaissance Airbnb doesn't really directly attack that as much as it sort of adds a new market, um, which can then grow and morph and do various things. So I don't think it's all just, you know, that the dinosaurs are dying. Um, on some level, yeah, they may get attacked from all different directions and so on, but yeah, that's a good point, Doug, because there's no reason why Hilton couldn't 
couldn't uh, innovate an Airbnb thing and just build it right onto onto them. Maybe maybe they didn't use it as a Hilton brand because that's probably not cool enough for Airbnb. But yeah, maybe it's not even a a, a a market that takes a lot of market share away from the physical hotel. It's just a whole nother uh, level yeah. of people. Like you know, yeah. there's people now that are just sort of living on Airbnb. They work remotely and they just go from one one Airbnb to the next. You know the the Uber kind of thing, where we're you know now starting to see sort of the downside of not having we'll say the medallion program and the, you know, sort of regulatory um, safety net, if you will, for, you know, getting in, getting in a car with somebody and, you know, them taking you somewhere. I mean, it's like between hitchhiking and cab, you know? I'm not sure I buy that, though. I think, you know, the the same amount of problems happen with uh, taxi drivers and maybe even more than, than with Uber drivers, but people who are, you know, still defending their, their, in their, their current stance in the medallion world uh, certainly have PR people too. Well, I, I see your point. I just don't know if I, I believe I, I it yet. See, yeah. I, I see Doug's point. I think um, the way I interpret what Doug is saying, is that there is? I don't believe in either ors. I don't believe in yeah, you know one, yeah. one thing completely replacing another. I think we are interested in shifts. We are interested in emerging up opportunities. If I was a Hilton and I'm saying that I need to expand and I need to grow, then clearly they run up against walls. It is not that they don't have an opportunity to deliver a better experience. They certainly do. But if we, as we step back from these things and we start recognizing that new forms are emerging, right? The ships are in many different directions. For example, in many industries, most of the growth is happening outside the developed world, right? And in the in, in when you start moving into like different uh, you know places like China and India or Brazil or wherever else you go in in Asia or Africa or whatever the notions of what is good is completely different. What is value is completely different. And so you might find a better traction for new models. And so when you are a Hilton and you think that you um, want to expand and grow, but your existing model uh, can only do retention of existing customers, but the new customers and new lifestyles and new ways of thinking and doing a lot of people, for example, the younger people in the U.S., for example, car ownership is going down significantly. Uh, people are moving into urban, you know, more and more living in the, um, you know, bigger urban locations and things like that. You see these shifts in lifestyle are eventually going to drive down, you know, the need to own anything, right? The need to own a car, the need to own, uh, you know, rental versus owning a home. If you look at that thing, the younger population is more and more looking at renting and not necessarily owning. So if you are in that business and if you're looking at where growth is coming from or where the shifts are, you would be necessarily interested, not just in throwing away what you built and not just in, you know, you can certainly innovate that, but you, you do have to recognize where the bigger shifts are. And you have to um, 
anticipate them. You have to um, fundamentally change your organization so that it can actually make that shift. And now to the heart of the matter. Business is a living, breathing ecosystem. Evolution meets business. You know, this is the idea of the ecosystem. The ecosystem is um, sometimes borrows from the ecological idea that many species coexist and many niches exist and you will see them uh, in different, you know, sizes and forms and um, they don't, you know, species don't die, you know, overnight. But they clearly, you know, I think, Doug, to your point about, uh, you know, your idea of uh, living enterprises, I mean, you know, they will at some point um, face extinction and die. So the question is, where does renewal, where does renewal happen? How does renewal happen? And um, and you have to be able, and I think where in, in corporations as against other species that evolve, um, you know, from a dinosaur to become a hen or whatever, if that is true. Uh, in the case of human social enterprises, we are much, you know, less uh, amenable to giving up, uh, you know, our deeply held. I was I was looking at a program yesterday um, on YouTube had to do with uh, cultural tourism, and so this person was interviewing people in Kampala in Uganda, and person you know it was a very interesting uh, way of looking at things and so she was exploring ideas of culture and you know ideas of deeply held practices and so what we saw about kampala in that video was that while on the one hand they were on the forefront of a number of things that you could see anywhere in the u.s in music in the way they you know dresses and cars and they have all the you know at least the affluent people have the same cars and so on and so forth as you start talking to these university students, you see, for example, they're still interpreting, you know, how they will change in the context of their culture. So when they come to issues like, you know, should we have multiple wives? And, you know, what is the, you know, why, what do you look for in a husband? Their answers are so deeply rooted in the context of their culture. And therefore, they will give it a new shape. I mean, they will adopt the new technologies, they will adopt these new paradigms, but they will adopt them in totally different ways. And they're so much more open, therefore, to different ways of thinking and, you know, doing and being, um, which is what we have to understand, I think, as a corporation, as things shift, whether they shift within, you know, within our country or within our borders, or whether we are looking at expanding elsewhere. I think we have to be open to the fact that we are at that point. And this is fascinating to me because I truly now believe that this is an inflection, that we are suddenly shifting a massive shift, uh, flow away of where, who has power, who has the ability to create value with the resources that they have. And they are no longer depending on traditional institutions and traditional sources uh, for that inspiration or for you know uh, or for resources and things like that. That is that is a snowball or, or whatever we might want to call it that is happening. In. 
Hey, so thanks for joining us on the Via Bridge podcast today, where we talk about the intersection of business, technology, and creativity. Be sure to check out all of our media, which can be found at streamdetroit.com. I'm Mike McClintock. We'll see you next time.